So, I have a fun fact for you. The last time I preached, it was actually in preaching class about 20 years ago, in a very conservative Bible college in the South, and I preached on how women shouldn't preach. <laughs> so, that didn't age super well, did it? But, so the thing about this passage that Connie read for us today is that most of us or many of us are incredibly familiar with it. Like, we know it. It's not shocking. It's just kind of how it goes. So Saul is converted. He becomes Paul. Then he goes on some missionary journeys. He writes a lot of letters that end up on our Bible. It's just become old hat for us. And for me too. What I took away from studying this passage, this is like my big idea takeaway, and I'm going to try and hopefully prove that over the next few minutes, is that the love of Jesus is often surprising, and it's also reorienting. It can interrupt our plans and inspire us to astonishing acts of love. So my goal for today is to walk us through this passage and try to see it with fresh eyes. So here are three surprises that I saw in the text which are all an outworking of that surprising and reorienting love of Jesus. So the first surprise is just Jesus himself. So like, just take a second and really think, because like, we know the story, right? It would be like if Snow White didn't, oh, I forgot, which, whatever. Whatever happened to Snow White, if it didn't happen at the end, that would be really surprising. But Jesus did show up here. The already risen Jesus showed up here for his followers who were hurting because he was hurting with them. There are multiple verses that refer to Christ as being the head of the church. I am an anatomy nerd though, and so I like to think of Jesus as the nervous system of the church. So, he innervates us. Through his spirit, we are given the impulse and the impetus to function as his body. And this also works because it's through our nervous system that we feel pain. Jesus, as the nervous system of the church, feels the pain of his body. So this is so important. <laughs> Maybe not for people who haven't had a warped view of God, but still. Jesus is never far removed from our pain. He's never far away from us. He's never far removed from our pain. So Willie James Jennings says this in his commentary on this passage. Jesus is one with the bodies of those who have called on his name and followed in his way by the Spirit. Their pain and suffering is his very own. This, too, is scandal. This, too, is a crossed line. The mystery of God is found in human flesh, moving in and with the disciples who are communion of suffering and a witness to life. The shared life of Jesus continues with his disciples as he takes hold of their horrors and they participate in his hopes. I think that's astonishingly beautiful. He takes hold of their horrors and they participate in his hopes. Sorry. I recently bought a book for my kids. It's called Mother God by Teresa Kim Pesanovsky. The author took feminine descriptions of God from scripture and then wrote about them for children. The words and the illustrations are just breathtaking. I actually cried the first few times I read it. Um, but what we're talking about here and Jesus being present with us in our pain, it reminds me of one of the images from this book. So what it says, she is the God who sees you. God weeps, mourns, and cries. She comforts you through the longest night, keeping watch. 
until sunrise. For me, there's something about the nurturing and the tenderness of God being presented in this mothering form that's so powerful. And it's something that can, I think, bring the reality of this <laughs> reality home for us in a new way. The second surprise is precious, faithful Ananias. So he experiences a vision where God instructs him to go to Saul and lay hands on him so that he can regain his sight. And Ananias is like, <laughs> I've heard a lot about this guy, though, and none of it's good. And God's like, no, really, go. And he went. I think that's amazing. And when he shows up, he starts off by saying, Brother Saul. Like right off the bat, this immediate extension of kinship with Saul. I am maybe just a cynical person, but I think I would have been a lot more hesitant, and I think I would have asked some questions first. I'm like, hey, you don't know my name because you're blind and you don't know my face, so uh, are you still planning to arrest people? You know, you know. But he just goes right in there with brother. Just goes right in there with kinship. By happy accident this week, I started rereading Gregory Boyle's book, Barking to the Choir, and um, I happened on this quote, and it was too perfect to leave out. Jesus was always hopeful about widening the circle of compassion and dismantling the barriers that exclude. He stood with the sinner, the leper, and the ritually impure to usher in some new remarkable inclusion, the very kinship of God. Living the gospel then is less about thinking outside the box than about choosing to live in this ever-widening circle of inclusion. The third surprise is Saul's change. And I think I might be sort of cheating here because it's not strictly in the passage that we read, but we do all know the story, so I'm going with it. Um, I spend so much time thinking about this, okay? And like, how can we really like wrap our today overly familiarized brains around like the shocking nature of this change? And I had the thought it would be like if I became a cat person. And that's absolutely me in a custom-made sweatshirt with my dog's face on it. That's my dog. Okay. And then I thought, no, it would be like if Sean suddenly became a diehard USC fan. I actually had to Google who Notre Dame's biggest rival was, and it turns out the internet isn't sure about that, but close enough, I did the best I could. Uh, but as I did some more research, I realized that those comparisons are kind of both right and wrong. Um, there's just another quote that I have, and it's kind of long because there's a lot of words in it, but it's a really important idea. So in the New Testament and its world, N.T. Wright and Michael Bird have this to say. The word conversion, though, should not mislead us. Paul did not convert in the sense of abandoning something called Judaism for something called Christianity. Neither of those words in the modern sense corresponds to a reality in Paul's world. Saul did, however, experience a 180 degree turn in many of his deeply held convictions about the God he served and how he should serve him. That is, Paul continued to be a loyal servant of the God of Israel, but was now fired with a quite different vision of who that God really was and what he was doing to fulfill his promises. So, read that thinking about all this, percolating on it. And then I was just walking into my kitchen and it hit me, okay? Saul wasn't violent after his conversion. 
Now, I've been a Mennonite for like a few minutes. Okay, it's been like five years. So maybe this is really old hat to all of y'all, but it felt like a really big deal to me. So in this passage, we have Luke's testimony of how Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. In Galatians, Paul has this to say of himself. I was violently persecuting the church of God and was trying to destroy it. I advanced in Judaism beyond many among my age, my people of the same age, for I was far more zealous for the traditions of my ancestors. That's Galatians 1, 13 through 14. So once he became a follower of Jesus, was he less zealous than before? Could that be why he was no longer violent? Um, having read, you know, the rest of the book of Acts and also Paul's letters, he strikes me as a pretty intense person, you know, just sort of generally. And I think zealous is a really appropriate word for that. Maybe he was no longer violent simply because he became a part of the group that he had formerly been persecuting. And first thought, I was like, well, yeah, that makes sense. But, 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 he could have been just as militant about his belief in Jesus as he had been in his belief that the followers of Jesus were a threat to the traditions of his ancestors. So why wasn't he? What happened? What happened was the apocalypse. So usually when we hear apocalypse, we think something like this painting. But the word apocalypse comes from a Greek word, which means to uncover, disclose, or reveal. So in attempting to get us to think about this passage with sort of fresh eyes or fresh ears and given like the significant change from Saul to Paul and how he lives, I think describing what caused the change as an apocalypse, it just feels really appropriate. But ultimately though, it was Jesus. Saul was absolutely, utterly, thoroughly and completely affected and changed by the revelation to him of Jesus. For Saul, that Jesus was raised from the dead was proof that Jesus was the fulfillment of what God had been doing, those traditions of his ancestors for which he was so zealous. That meant that how Jesus lived really, really mattered and matters. The life of Jesus, the creative way he engaged with people, the patient nonviolence, the kind faithfulness, Saul's life was radically reoriented toward Jesus and living like Jesus, particularly as it pertained to loving enemies, not retaliating, and to nonviolence. So the more time I spent with this, the more amazed I was that I had never seen this before in all of my years studying the Bible. Paul's letters are replete with instructions and encouragements toward nonviolence, which isn't surprising when you know about Christianity and how Jesus lived but it is surprising when you think about how Paul lived before. So a quick sampling, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Do not repay anyone evil for evil, but take thought for what is noble in the sight of all. If it is possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we speak kindly. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, beloved, to admonish the idlers, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with all of them. See that none of you repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to another and to all. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, clothe yourselves 
with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bear with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgive each other, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. So most of you here are aware of my story, that I spent about eight years in a very rigid, toxic faith place. I remember being in those spaces, not just the literal physical spaces, but I also remember how I used to think when I was there. I remember being distrustful of people who spoke too much of God's love because, you know, it's not the whole story. In the sermons I heard and the books I read, and there were a lot of both of those, the words Christ-centered featured heavily, but weirdly, Jesus didn't. The first time I attended a church outside of the space towards the end of those eight years, I was completely flummoxed, and I cried, which, if you're kidding, might be a theme in my life. Um, it was a little embarrassing. One of the church greeters came up to me afterwards to see if I was okay. I wasn't, like, sobbing, you know, it was just tears. And the only thing I could say was, there wasn't any wrath. Like, I don't know what to do with that. So I wasn't persecuting the church, but there was a lot of violence in what I believed. What I believed was violent, if that makes sense. And what children's book was I looking for when Charlotte was three and Calvin was one? A kid's board book about sin. That is what felt so important to me, that my kids understand at a super early age that they were sinners before love. Like, that was what was most important to me. So it took time, a lot of time. It took counseling. And it took this church, this place, these relationships, the sermons that I hear here, and I have experienced my own apocalypse. I've come to see the life of Jesus as at least equally important as his death. I've also come to see the beauty of the life of Jesus in a way I never have before. And like Saul, I have been absolutely, utterly, thoroughly, and completely affected by this revealing of Jesus. So the way I parent has changed, you'll be glad to know. The sin board book didn't make the move from Texas, okay? My marriage has changed, the way I spend money has changed, the way I interact with others, the way I interact with myself. There's less violence, a lot less. There's less internal rage, there's less yelling, and it may sound pat or trite to say, but there's more love. I can see this in my life, and I've been around long enough to see it in so many of your lives as well. The reorienting, the love, the nonviolence, and may it always be so. May we be ever surprised by the love and beauty of Jesus, and may our lives continue to reorient around him drawing us along in love towards ever-widening circles of inclusion. <laughs>